National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Hundreds of pilgrims have flocked to a Missouri monastery this week to see the remains of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, a Benedictine sister who died four years ago and whose recently exhumed body shows very little signs of decay. EWTN News' Kelsey Wicks went to Gower, Missouri last weekend to cover this remarkable story. Kelsey joins us today. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host of Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Executive Editor. Matthew, what an unusual story we have coming out of Missouri this week. It really is completely unexpected and, and oddly welcome, too, in the, in the light of uh, the whole Dodger story and, and other things that are out there right now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the, the way the community is reacting is, um, it, it's right, you know. This is, this is truly remarkable. And while the church has a cautious process of investigating such cases of apparent incorruptible remains, this story deserves a lot of attention. And, and the story of Sister Wilhelmina and the sheer number of people descending on this small town um, and coming away with strength and faith really demands um, even secular media attention, and it's gotten it. <laughs> so as we talk about this remarkable situation, we're joined now by Kelsey Wicks, who's executive director of EWTN's ASI Group, which is a, an international network of media agencies that cover the global church in seven languages. Uh, Kelsey you had the opportunity to go to Gower last week. Um, what did you and many other pilgrims find there? Well, I knew this was going to be an international story, and, and certainly it has actually captured the attention of the world and not just the United States. And uh, what I found was uh, a religious community, extremely um, extremely active um, in, in the sense of vocations and, and prayer, and um, uh, extremely active with pilgrims flooding in. And they were coming from all over, from Illinois, from um, Louisville, Kentucky, from Kansas, from Missouri, from nearby towns and, and towns as far away as nine hours. And everyone was really just trying to, to examine what they, what they found as, as something out of the ordinary, something possibly miraculous, and really just to um, strengthen their faith and, and, and look for a sign of hope. And describe what you saw physically um, in the remains of Sister Wilhelmina. Well, what you what I saw physically was um, a sister whose body looked as though it had just been a few days dead. I mean, it was it was remarkable. You know, her you could see all of her clothing was perfectly preserved. You could even see the brand name of the socks she was wearing, <laughs> which was just a fascinating detail. Her habit. Um, this this was one of the most outstanding details of the entire thing. Her veil was made of the same material as the interior lining of the coffin, and that lining decayed, and her veil did not. And so her veil perfectly preserved, um, her face um, and and hands uh, visible, her, her foot full of the, the sort of intact, um, almost fluid-like, um, uh, almost wax-like figure that you would expect of, of a normal foot, of a normal leg, certainly not skeletal remains. Sure. It's just remarkable. But before we go on to talk about, you know, just how extraordinary the situation is and, and how this might be possible, let's talk about 
who Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster is. I mean, she she was known, pretty well known, uh, even before uh, this remarkable moment. So please, who is Sister Wilhelmina? Well, what a what a fascinating story. Um, she was the second of five children born in St. Louis. Um, she grew up in um, the segregated Catholic Church in the South. And um, at the age of nine, during her first um, Holy Communion, she had this, uh, according to her bio- biography, um, she had this experience of Jesus inviting her to be his. And she said, he was so handsome, how could I resist? <laughs> and so she wrote, <laughs> this is remarkable, at age 13, when she finished grade school, she wrote to one of, as an African-American, one of the two communities that she could join at the time, the Oblate Sisters of Providence. And she said, um, dear Mother Superior, what does one need to bring to the convent? <laughs> and I would like to join you. I'm graduating from grade school, you know, in May. <laughs> please, please accept me, you know, something to that effect. And I am and, Catholic. Um, <laughs> and I am Catholic, yes. And I am Catholic. And, and the Superior wrote back to her, you know, let's give it some time. So she was valedictorian of her, her class in, in high school. And then at age 17, entered the Oblate Sisters of Providence. And and this is what's remarkable, you know, lived 75 years under religious vows. I mean, the diamond anniversary, it's, it's, um, it's the cornerstone of, of religious life and perseverance in religious life. So she lived 50 of those years under religious vows with the Oblate Sisters of Providence and then felt the interior prompting of God to start out at age 70 on a new venture founding this monastery in Gower, Missouri. It's truly remarkable. Of course, she was also known, I mean, the sisters, um, the Benedictine sisters of Mary uh, are known for their devotion to the traditional Latin mass, to Gregorian chant, to Benedictine contemplation, to the liturgy of the hours. And they had a, a chart-topping a Gregorian chant um, albums, right? So they, the community has, has seen some, I would say, some fame or renown, right? Uh, so... Uh, I wonder how they're taking this. Um, you were able to talk to the abbess of the community, Mother Cecilia. She she was one of the first, uh, really was the first to see the body. How has she reacted first to that experience, but really to the whole experience that has unfolded these days? Well, I can't wait to tell you the story of the abbess. I'm just going to make one footnote on um, the the Gregorian chant and the traditional Latin mass. All of that was really the imbuing of Sister Wilhelmina's spirit into the community that she founded. She had a a really dramatic turn um, in her late 60s to understanding the beauty of sacred music and forming the soul. You know, the the catechesis that those hymns give, um, the doctrinal content that they give, it's very solid. And she had no noticed a difference in her own prayer life when she when she prayed with those rather than you know with with some of the the folk songs or or things that were popular um, in her community and in the parishes that she was in at the time so it's it's a remarkable um impression that that community has been given by the founders but when when the abbess found her this is this is fascinating um you know here they are they're opening up the the grave and they see that there's a crack in the coffin and so this means of course that they're 
they're going to be able to see inside. And as the abbess, um, it was her responsibility to look into the coffin and see what was there. She said, it's not something you do every day. So she had a flashlight and she looks in and she goes, oh my goodness, I think I saw a foot. And she goes, I couldn't have seen a foot. That's not possible. And so she kind of takes a breath and then she looks again and then she, she sort of screams and then she says back to her community, I see a foot. And the sisters who had just finished praying the rosary all start cheering you know, kind of <laughs> oh, understanding gosh. that this is this is some sort of um, uh, out of the ordinary uh, event that's happened in their life, you know, and um, and they had I think some inkling of, of what that meant, you know. There is a process of the church, and and the bishop has called for an investigation, but um, the sisters regard it as as miraculous, and and um, it, it was a very touching moment when she described that story to me. Yeah, uh, Kelsey, the. The excitement of this community, though, is also matched in so many ways by the excitement of the wider community. And this story went viral so quickly. What's the, the wider community in Missouri thinking of all of this? Well, I think they're just um, incredibly edified. You know, the, the, I had a family with six children who, who stopped to talk to me. I interviewed them, and, and the kids were like, we were just amazed. The mom said they just stopped and prayed. The, the father said, you know, in this time of darkness, we're, we're just so happy to have something to hold on to. And I, I think, you know, you have to ask yourself what the faithful see in, in a sign like this. What is it that they are um, reflecting upon and gaining hope from it? And really, you know, in, in the church's understanding, when, when people talk about possibly incorrupt bodies, it's a testimony to the future resurrection. It's a testimony to eternal life. And that's the level of hope and, and miraculous. It's also a sign of, of God. One, one man I interviewed said, you know, um, for people of faith, we don't need, um, you know, we don't need the, the sort of miraculous as or the evidence you know to pile up we we have the gift of faith but you know it's it's beautiful to see these signs that confirm you know that god is active in the world that he's doing something and and person after person that i interviewed from an 86 year old woman to that nine-year-old girl were saying basically the same thing we, we see hope in this Absolutely. You know, um, the abbess that you spoke to, and you were really one of the first to, to, to speak to her and, and, and write about it and publicize it aside from social media uh, in a story that we ran at a Catholic news agency, A Miracle in Missouri, question mark, body of Benedictine sister, sister's foundress thought to be incorrupt. Uh, that was the story title. And the abbess told you um, that what she takes away from this is, is similar to what you're saying many people are, are gaining from it, which is heaven is real. The resurrection is real. Uh, and especially during these times in the church and in the world, this is a sign of hope. And that's how they're taking it. And that's really a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. So uh, I think all of us can take uh, joy in that as we see this process unfold. Yeah, and if I could just add in, you know, I mean, what's interesting about um, about the the sort of miraculous feel of all of this? It, it, from my own read of the situation, one of the most miraculous things was seeing the full monastery of of young, joy filled sisters praising God. I mean, you know, the sisters were going about their their 
prayer life, their orarium, as though nothing was happening, as though these pilgrims weren't streaming into their chapel, and they were just, you know, the bells <laughs> would toll for, for the seven different liturgies of the hour, and the sisters would come in, and then they would leave, and, and the rhythm continued. And, and when you look at, you know, um, the, the life of, of holy persons, you know, part of um part of what most people say is is um miraculous is is do they inspire others to live the life of holiness mm -hmm. sure. and here is a monastery full of 40 people um which it just you don't see every day right so while some are calling it a, a miracle in Missouri, and, and it certainly um, does inspire holiness, there, is, there are signs, sure signs, of, of holiness here and, and inspiration in the spiritual life. Of course, miracles in the church have to be verified before they're called miracles. Um, and as you mentioned, the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, um, has said they're considering the next steps. Um, it isn't a common occurrence, they acknowledge, and they, they said Bishop James Johnson is... Is, is working to establish a process to understand the nature of her condition, Sister Wilhelmina's remains. So, Matthew, I wanted to ask you, you're, you're a historian, a theologian, yeah. what is the Church's process of handling cases of seemingly incorrupt bodies? Well, with great care and prudence, um, it's considered a sign, not a miracle, and, and that's always important to stress, that uh, within the, the causes for canonization, for example, uh, that uh, you do not have to be incorrupt, for example, to be declared a saint. Uh, it's not considered one of the, the key validation points in any cause. Rather, the focus really is always on the heroic virtue of a candidate. But again, there is that sign um, that uh, someone is incorrupt. But then there's the, the key, as, as we do with miracles, of focusing very intently on possible scientific explanations for it. And with the burial of anyone, there can be a lot of natural phenomena that can impact uh, levels of decomposition. We obviously don't want to get into too many biological details. <laughs> right. But the reality is that uh, it's a mystery, and we do our best to understand that mystery. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think, as we're seeing in this case, the evidence of remarkable preservation uh, is a touch point that is bringing a lot of people uh, to Missouri, but also to focusing on the extraordinary life of a fairly extraordinary person. Right, right. You know, um, the abbess told us that uh, she thought that Sister Wilhelmina could be the first African-American woman to be found incorrupt. And of course, that process will go on and exactly. on in this investigation. Um, but also, we should say, you know, a cause for, for canonization hasn't been started for for this uh, woman. So Precisely. that's a very long process. And if that were to take place, that would take place, you know, in, in time. Right. It's, uh, it's even worth noting that uh, typically uh, certain dispensations can be given, but a minimum amount of time is five years before a cause can even start, uh, before a cause can, can, can open. I mean, so you need five years after the person passes before mm -hmm. the so-called diocesan phase can even get underway or you can request permission for a cause to start. And uh, Sister Wilhelmina, I believe, Kelsey, correct me if I'm wrong, passed away in 2019. And That's we're not correct. suggesting that there's going to be a cause for canonization. But this is why the church always proceeds with such great prudence uh, in all of these matters, because they're really important spiritually uh, for all of us. Right. 
So this is Register Radio on EWTN. We have been talking about uh, the mysterious case of uh, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, whose remains were found in a, in a very preserved state after, four years after she'd passed. We, it, this is Jeanette DeMello and Kelsey Wicks and Matthew Bunsen and EWTN News crew here having this conversation on Register Radio. So, Kelsey, um, we have been doing some research at a Catholic news agency. Um, Joe, uh, Joe Bakuras has, has been contacting um, experts in mortuary science um, to just ask about the conditions of her body. And I think we should go over a few facts. <laughs> One, she was not embalmed, correct? That is correct. According to what the abbess told me, um, she was uh, 9 p.m. on the Vigil of Ascension, uh, left for the Father's house, and then um, was waked for the day after that, and then um, and then buried. They had uh, everything ready to go, and so um, they just placed her in her casket and and um, and buried her quite simply. And the the it was a burial in a graveyard. No. Um, concrete tomb, you know, overlayment of that. It was just in the earth, uh, and it was um, a simple hand-crafted uh, coffin. Uh, and when they found the coffin, it had been cracked through, correct? That is correct. And that's one of the, the interesting points that Joe, in his research, has has been pursuing with these professors of mortuary science. And um, it it, it does suggest a, a number of things that, that could have happened, right? Where were the insects um, that would mm -hmm. have decomposed certain things? Because with the crack in there, um, there certainly would have been that level of exposure. Where, um, you know, there was water, her... her the, the abbess speaks about each member of the community sort of touching the foot with the socks and um, the foot being damp and the socks being damp. We all know what it's like when you go camping and you have rainy <laughs> gear and, you know, you it, it starts to um, mold and, and can quickly become into tatters. You know, um, how long was the, the, the crack in the coffin there? We don't exactly know, but um, it certainly was there for a long enough time for... Um, uh, mold and water to, to enter into the coffin. Right. And so what we're finding, these um, experts that we have been talking to, um, they have expressed surprise. They, they said four years later, you know, you would find, you would expect to find a, a severely decomposed body. Um, and and you would also find a smell. <laughs> um, and, and there have been pilgrims who have testified. Joe talked to one who said that there was no smell. Um, in fact, one pilgrim said they smelled a, a more like a sweet, flowery aroma um, as they visited the body. And you were there yourself, and you reported no smell. That's correct. Yes. I mean, what was remarkable to me was there was no smell and um, pilgrims had laid flowers next to her body and, you know, flowers without water after one day had begun to shrivel and, and dry up and decay. And then here's sister's body and it's been out <laughs> at the point after four years dead at the point I visited three days, it had already been out exposed to the atmospheric conditions, which should have you know, if, if underground hadn't created those conditions, which you would think that the exposure to the atmospheric conditions would then create a new level of, of decay and corruption, and, and yet there it was. That's right. And we've, we've talked to pilgrims who were there more than a week after, so it, 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 it hasn't yet um, 
you know, yielded to a, a foul odor or anything like that. So what we talked to the scientific um, experts about was also something called grave wax. The sisters said they found a layer of mold on her, on her body at first and on her, on her clothing, which they, they cleaned off. Um, the clothing you see in the pictures is, is the clothing she was buried in, right? And That is correct. And so some have said, is this grave wax? Is this a, a, a phenomenon that happens with the, um, the kind of the fatty tissue of the body creating like a soap-like uh, tissue just over the, a layer of, over the skin? And it can preserve a body, and this has happened in, in other cases. Um, but when we've asked about this, um, they, the, the uh, experts have also thought this doesn't sound like that kind of case where it would be a, ha- a highly alkaline uh, atmosphere or a very cold atmosphere that would create such a situation. So again, even with some natural phenomena, uh, you know, natural situations of this happening, experts are saying that they don't really see that situation here, of course. We need, you know, it needs to be researched. It needs to be precisely investigated by people there um, who are knowledgeable of this kind. But I did want to share one thing that one um, uh, one scientist said, and let me find it here. It's this is a developing story, but he is a Catholic, and uh, he he said, if I saw this. <laughs> Um, even with my scientific knowledge that I would have a devotion to this woman. Um, it, was, it was really quite remarkable. Um, this story can be read at, at CNA, um, at Catholic News Agency, uh, by Joe Bacoris. Um, and we'll continue to do work, um, you know, to uncover um, what is going on here. But Kelsey, please tell us what the next steps are. Um, this is Memorial Day weekend. Um, pilgrims are flocking. What are the next steps? Well, um, the next steps are that the sisters will have a rosary procession and uh, will then um, place the place the body of Sister Wilhelmina into a glass-encased um, casket on uh, May 29th. And then they will um, uh, put her put her uh, mortal remains underneath the shrine of, of St. Joseph that they have within their chapel. There's a longstanding tradition of, of independent communities and monasteries being able to have their founders and foundresses inside the churches that they that are where the sisters pray. Um, Mother Angelica, as you know, is buried in the in a tomb in Hansville. And so um, the sisters wanted to move their foundress into their chapel so that she could be with them during the times that they are in the chapel. And um, she shall be soon. So on May 29th, then at that point, um, her body will be will be encased in a in a glass tomb and then and then covered um, at certain at, at various intervals uncovered, but um, mostly covered because of a certain prescriptions that the church has against, um, you know, putting her on display for um, various reasons, most of which are due to the cause that could potentially be open for her canonization. Mm-hmm. Matthew, would you have anything more to add about, uh, maybe just a reminder of the process of canonization? I mean, it's, it's quite long. You said it, it has to be five years, but what more? Well, then you have, uh, you request uh, permission from the Holy See uh, to 
start a cause, at which point, uh, once permission is granted, the the candidate in question receives the title of servant of God, and then you have a very lengthy uh, diocesan phase where you have tribunals. I, I had the privilege of serving on uh, one of the tribunals, a commission, on the historical commission for the cause of, of the Reverend Prince Demetrius Galitzin. And speaking from that experience, it, it is truly exhaustive because you need to look at the history, the context, and the life of the candidate. And then uh, it's even more complicated uh, to be on the theological commission. Uh, because you have to look at all of the writings and speeches, and, and many of these candidates were public figures. So once that is done, and there are no serious objections that are discovered, uh, the, the whole process is sent to Rome, sealed with wax, uh, and sent to Rome, uh, where the cause is validated by the congregation, now dicastry for the causes of saints. And that's, in many ways, where the real work begins, because then you need a postulator on that side uh, mm -hmm. to craft... Basically, it's called a, a positio. It's a position paper arguing the heroic virtue of a candidate. And that uh, there's no real time frame for that. That can take however long as it does. And it's an academic exercise, but it's also a spiritual exercise where the, the postulator helps us to get to know this candidate, but helps the dicastery to get to know the candidate too. And if all of that is approved, the Holy Father gives his permission for the declaration of heroic virtue, and they receive the title of venerable, then the rest is pretty much up to God because you need a miracle for beatification and a miracle for uh, a canonization. And uh, in some cases, it can take centuries. Uh, right. I think of, uh, I think it was uh, Al Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus. He wasn't canonized until 1931, and he died in the high Middle Ages. Right. So, and and this, as we, you need a miracle, and this is not necessarily considered a miracle. Incorruptibility. Um, it's it's a sign, right? And so the miracles would be of another of another kind. I did find the quote that I was talking about. Uh, Dr. Barry Lease is the president and CEO of Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science, and he says, "If you're telling me this woman went into the ground uninvolved in a wooden box with no outer container in the ground, it was not sub-zero in Africa. I'm telling you." I'm going to start a devotion to this sister because something special is going on here. And I think that that's what we have to think about right now. There is something very special going on with Sister Wilhelmina, and uh, we can stay tuned uh, for what might be next. Kelsey, Matthew, thank you so much for your, uh, for your time and attention uh, and in reporting on this case. Thank you so much. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray that until next week, God bless you. If you need your news on the go, read the register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the Register for its faithful and courageous reporting. Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. 
That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on ewtn.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.